Corinthians chapter 4. But I haven't said it. Thank you to all those who labor, who, Brother Brandon, if I never told you, thank you for your labor in presenting us 1 Corinthians over the last several weeks. Thank you for those who labor downstairs. Thank you who labor with the women. Thank you who all who labor in the church to make sure everything is nice, cool, lights on, and everything's functioning, and the bills are paid. Uh, much gratitude and thankfulness from my heart to you all. I love that song we sung, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. Uh, that Julia Johnston, if you really read that second verse when she says, Dark is the sin that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? And then she gets to that verse, that word, look. And she has exclamation points following after that. Look, look, there is flowing a crimson tide, wider than snow you can be today. What a, what a glorious song. Take your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse number 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in the craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who hath commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we gather together first and foremost to magnify your name, uh, to praise your name for this great grace that you have poured out upon us. Lord, may we see this morning as we flesh out that which you have put upon Paul's heart to be preserved for us even unto this day. Lord, we give thanks to you for all that you've done, your love, your grace, and your mercy. Thank you for blessing the Witten Place Baptist Church with people who have a heart to labor, even if they're laboring behind the scenes. We give thanks to you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul here was writing to the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth, it seemed to have every vile sin of society uh, seeming to be culminating within the church. And we understand that the problem is not that the church is planted in the world. The problem comes when the world has found itself inside the church. 
Paul here when he first reaches out to them in 1 Corinthians, there was division there. There was drunkenness there. There was heresy, carnality, homosexuality, strife, jealousy, adultery, extortioners. It seemed to be on every side that Paul seemed the, the entire letter was addressing problems within the church. This grieved Paul so bad that when he wrote the letter to them in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 2, he explains to them that he was grieved that he had to speak to them so coarsely. He was grieved that he had to write them so strongly, but now he rejoiced because he seen that the letter was actually fruitful. It caused people to turn around. It caused people to flee from their sin and turn back to the Lord. Even more, we, we see that here in chapter 4 and verse 2 that Paul has moved away from them, exhorting them to leave sin, but exhorting them to take a new stand in ministry, uh, to plant their feet firm upon the ministry in which God has called them to do. Even more, when we read these verses that are given to us here in chapter number four, never once does Paul say that it is the pastor's job to speak against sin. Never once does he say it's just the pastor's job alone to speak about the gospel. And never once does he ever even approach those things because it is absolute nonsense. When we come into chapter 4 and verse number 1, Paul is continuously reminding us there in the first plural pronoun, we. It is therefore seeing we, meaning us have a ministry, this ministry, as we have received mercy that we faint not. So he says here that it is to remind us that all of us have been assigned to the labor in which God has placed us. Whether we fully understand it or not, God has assigned each and every one of us who fill these pews to the ministry for the fruitfulness, for the exaltation of his name out of the Witten Place Baptist Church. That is what we say when we join the membership of the church, that we have committed ourselves to fulfill the ministry and perform in ministry in the place in which God has placed us. Now hear me, in, in the face of struggle, Paul did not write the church in 1 Corinthians and say, hey, if I was you, seeing all the problems that Corinth has, seeing all the wickedness that Corinthians has, Paul never wrote the members of Corinth and said, listen, if I was you, you guys who are saved, you or who are more enlightened in scriptures, if I was you, the first thing I would do is get out of Corinth. It's not what he said. Even more, we understand that Paul's encouragement, even as we see here in chapter number four, he said, when church is not going the way that you like, when, when church isn't, when you don't see the kind of things that you desire in church, it's not time to leave. It's time to roll up your sleeves and contribute. 
Maybe the reality is that the cynicism, the cynical side of our view is the lack of a desire to want to do that which God has put upon our hearts to do. Hear me, the local New Testament church is not just your pastor's ministry. It's our ministry. I wonder how long we would be in our, how far along we would be in our churches if we would stop wasting time criticizing and start to realize the church is not perfect. And when I say the church is not perfect, I mean to say people in the church are not perfect. We're not perfect at all. We have this mentality that, well, if, if we don't like what's going on, we'll just go somewhere else and contribute. I mean, could you imagine what it would have been like if Paul would have told them to abandon Corinth? This is the mentality that we have today. We at some times envision that there is another church somewhere out, the out in the world that is more perfect for us. If Paul would have told them to abandon Corinth for their sins and they would have abandoned Corinth and went to Galatia, you know what they would have found themselves in the midst of? They would have found themselves in the midst of a church who had jeopardized and brought the gospel to a non-saving effect. If he just said, you know what, what you need to do is abandon Corinth and go to Ephesus. You know where they would have found themselves? They would have found themselves in a church that was performing well, but they lacked love. They had left their first love. If they would have abandoned Corinth and went to Thyatira, they would have found themselves in the midst of a church who had a woman who had the spirit of Jezebel amongst the church. I say all of that to say that churches are not perfect. This is why we all have been called to the ministry. This is why he challenges them that we must all come together. We might all see different things, but it is each and every one of our responsibilities to encourage one another. Even more, all churches, as I say, have problems, but we must be, we must be of the heart that is the roll-up-the-sleeve mentality. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, that we faint not. We live in a society that emphasizes on positions, we, uh, that emphasizes on titles. We equate position and titles to your standing in society. On Thursday, I had the opportunity to speak to an old friend, and as he was beginning to tell me all the things that he was doing in his new role, you could see his chest puffing up about how proud he was of who he was in this country. We see it even today. People will say, well, I'm a part of the Secret service. They can't even say it without their chest puffed up. We see people today who say, well, I'm on presidential detail. I'm in the military, even in our secular jobs. It's hard to find a boss or a manager who cannot say or who can say, I am the director of operations without having his chest puffed up. Society is driven about title makes you something great in this world, which I do agree. But what I'm trying to emphasize to you is that the titles of this world 
pale in comparison. Do we understand and recognize the highest role, the highest position that you can have in this country is to be assigned by God into the gospel ministry? There is no greater title than that that God looked down from heaven and chose sorry old Danny Ho to minister on this earth for his namesake. We all have been called to be ministers. And, and, and know this. God did not look down from heaven and pick you because you were some kind of winner. He didn't look down from heaven and say, well, you know what? I'm selecting you because you have a phenomenal memory. I'm going to select you because it seems whatever you put your mind to, that you have this uh, a great commitment to, it seems that you always follow through. And believe it or not, he didn't pick us because of our stunning good looks. We are all called to this ministry because of God's loving Mercy. When we get promoted in this world, when we get promoted at our jobs, oftentimes we're promoted at our jobs because you are a standout above the rest. We get promoted at our jobs because we scored the highest score. We get promoted at our jobs maybe sometimes because of nepotism. But whatever it may be, there is something unique about us that gets us promoted in this life. Paul said, I was promoted to the gospel ministry. We were all promoted to the gospel ministry when I was not faithful, when I was not useful. He counted me as faithful and put me into service. Uh, look what Paul wrote here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. He said, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. Did you see that? He didn't pick me because I was faithful. He counted me as faithful. Paul still had not connected from who he was in the past. He goes on to verse number 14, but who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Listen, Paul is not a special case. Paul's lifestyle before he was saved may be unique, but the truth is it is for all of us that before salvation, we were all of these things, but God looked down from heaven and counted us as faithful when we were unfaithful. And called us into the ministry. And this verse tells us that therefore seeing we have this ministry. As we have received mercy we faint not. God counted you as faithful when you were not. He counted you as faithful when you were in sin. This promotion that has been given to you into this ministry is because of what? He says. It's because of mercy. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy. People want to behave like God is this God who eagerly stands by the wayside 
desiring to pour out judgment and wrath upon us. Even to our very first account of understanding Scripture, we understand the God we serve is a merciful God. He's a merciful God. Long before he tells uh, Moses in Exodus, when we read the book of Genesis, we understand that God is merciful. How do we understand that? Because if God is what the world likes to paint him as this God who is just seeking to pour out righteous or holy judgment upon mankind, why didn't when Eve sinned in the garden, God just show up on the scene and judge Eve right then? Why is it that when Adam sinned, God didn't just show up right on the scene and judge Adam in his sin when he ate of the fruit? Why is it that God even allowed a span of time for Adam and Eve to go and sew these leaves together and cover themselves with these garments? Why is it even after that situation that God would arrive in the cool of the evening and speak to them? It only cries out that God is merciful to those whom he loves. He was merciful upon Adam and Eve. He didn't rush in to pour out his judgment upon them. And even when he entered into the garden, the Bible says that he would take the coat of skins. There would be a sacrifice, again, painting the pure image of God's mercy that another person, or in this sense, another animal would pay in for their sins and cover their sins. It was a beautiful image and portrait of mercy that was yet to come upon wicked sinners. They deserved judgment. They deserved, uh, they deserved, they deserved judgment. They didn't deserve mercy, but God made a way and covered them. In Romans, Paul said that, I beseech you therefore, uh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a what? As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He calls this reasonable service. But what does he say? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by what? What is the compelling factor that compels us to move forward? What compels us to present our bodies as living sacrifices? The mercies of God. It is God's mercy that is the driving factor in our hearts in ministry. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy. God's mercy is withholding of judgment that sinners deserve. It is temporarily, with, temporarily withheld for those who will die in their sins, but it is permanently withheld for those who are saved. By the way, this word ministry, it has a real complex meaning. It comes from the Greek word diakona. Not, diakon, like a, not as a deacon, but in the same aspect. The word here, therefore, seeing we have this ministry, it's complex because it really simply means we have this ministry in which we're called that we're in service to others. We have this ministry in which we've been called that we render help to others. And this ministry as a whole is about others. At root, that word ministry screams of others and not ourselves. 
even more, we see that uh, sometimes while we're trying to reach the world from Christ, sometimes we run our race, but we are discouraged by whatever it may be. Maybe we don't see the progress we want. Maybe it's by um, the foolish comments of, of others. I don't know who came up with that childhood rhyme that we used to hear. Uh, what is it? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. May applied when we was kids, but words hurt. Words are discouraging at times. Matter of fact, when you read 1 Corinthians, Paul was discouraged by the words that people in Corinth were saying about him. They said, oh, soon he's going to fade out. Soon he's, his ministry is going to come to an end. Soon he, he's going to be a burnout. Matter of fact, we don't even think he has apostolic authority. But Paul says here, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. Paul said as he faced challenges against his apostleship, as he faced challenges in ministry, as he faced the harmful words of others, he said, when we get there, this ministry that we all have, that we all have received mercies of God. Do not faint. Do not quit. Do not give up. When he says here in this word, we faint not. It means that we will not lose heart. That we will not become discouraged. That we will not give up. It is an all-encompassing statement. When people criticize your walk, don't faint. When people question the things that you're doing, don't faint. When people question what you're even doing in ministry or even if you're faithful, don't faint. Don't give in to fear. Don't lose courage. He reminds us here that the ones who criticize us in ministry are not the ones who called us into ministry. Don't faint. Keep on walking, he says. Keep on moving forward. But not only the way we once did, in verse number two, he says, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He said, don't fade. Even if it's hard, we must keep renouncing the the." A pressure that the church is feeling today in the world is to renounce. It's to back up from the original stand or the stand that the church has held for all of these years. Just give in a little bit. You know, your church would grow. Your church would experience great growth if you would just be a little more liberal or if you would just give in these areas or apply grace in these areas. And one thing that I'm learning in my short little time in ministry is giving in those areas only create more problems. We must not renounce. We must not give in. But we must continue to renounce the hidden things of dishonesty. Paul says, listen, I refuse to follow. I refuse to follow after those people who promote the things of dishonesty. This word dishonesty 
used elsewhere in scriptures is translated as the word shamed. Paul said the, the world ought to be ashamed with the way they're behaving. The legalists ought to be ashamed with the way they're behaving. Some believers ought to be ashamed with the way they are behaving. He says, and then not walking in craftiness. And this means uh, unscrupulous conduct. This means unprincipled behavior. If you was to take this word and cross-reference it throughout the New Testament, you would find yourselves in Luke chapter 20 and verse 23 where the Lord was there speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes. And as they were speaking to them, they asked the Lord, is it lawful for us to render this money unto Caesar? The Bible says there in the 23rd verse, and he perceived their craftiness. He perceived that they were up to no good. He perceived that this behavior was ungodly. And he ends that verse with when he says, why tempt ye me? Why are you even trying to tempt me? Paul says we must renounce the world. We must renounce sin. We must renounce the craftiness of those who live in the world and be able to step back and say, why are you even trying to tempt me? Do you not even know who I'm in service to? Even furthermore, uh, renounce the old tricks. He says, nor do we handle the word of God deceitfully, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This word uh, handling here not only means to take something and use it deceitfully, but it also means to take something and to falsify it. He said we ought not to be the kind of people that use the word of God deceitfully or use the word of God and falsify it to bring about our own satisfaction. He said for us, we, we have to be preachers. We have to handle the word of God clearly. We have to preach the gospel. We are in the business of freeing people from the bondage of Satan. He said, if you people are lost even more, it's not because. If people are lost in the day, this is what should be said. If people around us are lost, it should not be from the fact that we failed to preach the gospel. If people are lost around us today, it shouldn't be because we have failed to handle our ministry correctly. He says in verse number three, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The gospel is hid to them because Satan hath blinded our, uh, their eyes, not because we've been an effective in ministry. We must do our part and recognize that in this world, we will encounter people whose eyes are blinded by the devil. And unless God shines his light down upon them, and like no wise, and in no wise they will be saved. Even more, it is said that they are blind. They are blind. It is to say that they see nothing at all. 
I mean, what a terrible thing to say that someone is blind, not in the physical aspect, but that they are blind to the reality of their desperate need for the gospel. My son is in his senior year. He is blind to his reality of his desperate need of math. He thinks that trigonometry and algebra and all of these other things in life, calculus, are not necessary. Yet what he doesn't fully realize is that he's surrounded in a world that's full of numbers, equations, and magnitudes. And because he's not out in the world, he doesn't fully understand how much he'll desperately need those things. And so it is for the world who is blind to the gospel. Just because they are blind to the gospel does not discredit the gospel. But the world around them cries out of their desperate need of Christ, yet they do not fully understand it at this moment. He said, we have this ministry as we have received mercy that we faint not. Satan has hid the truth from them. He's blinded them. He blinds in many ways today. Uh, we talked about it even this morning in Sunday school. He blinds them through Islam. He blinds them through Mormonism. He blinds them, uh, whether it's through Buddhists, they are blinded because Satan has presented a substitute that has no saving grace. And even more than that, when there's no false idol presented before them, he gives them the thought process that they don't need nothing at all. He has blind their eyes. But since our scripture says, since they are bound by the prince and the power of the air, since they are blind, we need something more powerful than Satan. So he says here in verse number five, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. As believers in our ministry, this is our anthem. Good morals will not save us. Precepts will not save us. Principles will not save us. Memorizing creeds will not save us. Our anthem is, for we preach Christ. And that is the saving person in our faith. There is no other salvation outside of Christ. For we preach Christ. There is a name in which Satan fears. He trembles. We preach Christ. As Satan seeks to devour, as the roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, he longs to take humanity and take their hearts to the darkest cells known in this life. He blinds their eyes. He captivates them. But darkness must always respond to light. So he says in verse number six, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a great truth. This is not only a great truth, but this is the answer to the world. These are not just words. These are the most valuable words someone could ever hear. Paul magnifies. He lifts up this day that the light was shined down upon his heart. 
This is what God did in all of us. We may not have been thrown from a horse, but we can testify about the day that God showed up in our lives. I didn't fully understand it, December 27, 2008. I didn't fully understand that I was bound in sin. If you would have spoke to me on December 27, 2008, I don't know that I could explain to you that I was in any need of Christ at all. I was aware of it because Brother Head and Brother Green were constantly showing up at my house, bearing out their ministry. And when they showed up in my home, they said, for we preach Christ. And they preached Christ. And they preached Christ. In December 28, 2008, at 1030 at night, when no gospel message was being preached to me, the glorious God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, shined down his light from heaven. And there, in that moment, God made me aware of my sinful condition. Who but Christ can bring us to this understanding? Who but God could shove away all the darkness that captivated my life? Who but God could call the darkness of my life to flee? Who could ever make me regret all of the bad decisions I ever made? But God, for we preach Christ. It was God and only God who can shine down from heaven and cause the darkness to flee that is in our hearts. But I love how he closes this. Portion. It was actually this verse right here that captivated me this week in my reading to make me even want to preach this text. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessel that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Paul was always aware of how frail he was. He was always aware of his humanity and how weak. Paul said, though I am weak, though I am aging, though my physical body is breaking down, I recognize that inside of this black piece of coal, there is a diamond. But we have this treasure in earthen vessel. Paul said, we have this gospel message in this broken piece of pottery. That's what it means when he takes the vessel, but then he brings it back to the word earthen, earthen vessel. We have this treasure of the gospel inside of this broken down vessel that the excellency, the reason this is, Oh, the reason we have this precious message in this broken down vessel is that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. If our flesh was exalted, we probably would never speak of Christ. If our bodies was an agent, we wouldn't be reminded of our death, but we are reminded of our frailty through this earthen vessel. Yet we're all the more reminded, he says, that this, and even as we society looks at this, is that we look at ourselves as frail vessels. When we, we have a coffee mug at the house that cracks in the microwave from microwave and coffee, we throw it out. When we have a piece of glass in the house or whatever display, unless you're my mother, 
um, we throw it out, you know. These vessels, when they break, they crack, they fracture, they're garbage. But even more, Paul said, in this weak man, in this broken vessel of clay, there is a treasure. I may be broken on the external, but on the internal, we have the most prized thing that we can ever have, our salvation. So he says here this morning to us, we have this ministry. This is our ministry. And though we may get bogged down at times in ministry, he reminds us that this ministry is propelled by our remembrance of mercy. We have this ministry as we have received mercy. When we feel faint, we think about the one who did not faint so that he could deliver us. And if people are dying and if people are on their way to hell, this ministry calls us in a spiritual sense, to lay down before them and disrupt their trails so that they will have to jump over us to continue their path to hell. This is our ministry. We have this ministry to preach Christ and him crucified. This is the greatest opportunity that we have in this life. You're discouraged. The encouragement is don't faint. You don't like things you heard, don't quit. People don't like the way you're doing things, don't stop. Unless it's sin, stop. (laughs) But keep moving on in service for the Lord. This is the encouragement to us all. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy that's poured out upon us. Lord, I pray that we recognize that when we look about how much we fail in this life, that you're still merciful. May we recognize that God is not looking down from heaven, waiting to pour out judgment upon our sin, but the judgment for our sin has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. And that God looks down upon love a fatherly love in which we cannot fully understand, calling us to get faithful to the ministry. We give thanks to you for all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen.